Uh, it's a hard passage to understand, and it's going to need our full attention. So it's a good job you've had coffee. It's hard because some of you, when you read this, feel convicted. It's hard because some of you actually feel condemned. Uh, and it's hard because some of you are just tempted to brush it off and say it doesn't apply to me. But one of the well-known scriptures of Paul, <coughs> 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, he says that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So just as we were looking through that list earlier and saying what applied to me, maybe this morning you need to be taught. Maybe this morning you need to be rebuked. Maybe you need correcting. Maybe you need training in righteousness. Uh, But as a servant of God, you want to be thoroughly equipped Mm. for every good work. So listen up. And don't confuse condemnation and conviction. Sometimes our enemy, the devil, will come to us and use the words of Scripture. He did that with Jesus. When the devil comes and brings Scripture to you, he does it to condemn you. When the Holy Spirit comes and brings Scripture to you, he does it to convict you. He does it so that things can change. The Holy Spirit (coughs) wants to make us good and faithful servants. So don't brush him away. It's a hard passage and it needs our full attention. Some some of us are very familiar with this. Uh, Some of us perhaps have never read this scripture before. But these are the words of Jesus. In fact, these are some of Jesus' last words Mm -hmm. before he died We need to hear what Jesus is saying, not what we think he is saying. We live in a very different time and place and culture. We're separated by 2,000 years from when these words were spoken and 2,500 miles. Um, We can be separated too in our thinking, in our philosophy and our tradition. So we're going to have to work quite hard. Jesus warned people who claimed to know God, that for the sake of their traditions, they made God's word void, ineffective. He said, this people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So that's our prayer this morning, that we won't be like that, that this won't be in vain, that we won't nullify, make void God's word, but that it will actually come and equip us and train us and rebuke us and correct us, train us in righteousness. So what are talents? Um, You could say Britain's got talent, but after last night, um, Eurovision... 
Perhaps not. Um, some people here are footballers and know what a talent scout is. Um, some of you blokes who look where you shouldn't look uh, like to go out and keep your eye on the local talent. Um, and some of you children here are gifted and talented, apparently. Um, and that's in, in, in school, there's a special class for those who are gifted and talented. Well done. <laughs> but the, the implication is that talented is to be extraordinary, uh, to be uncommon, uh, to be special. Um, in, I don't know if any of you have heard of uh, Garrison Keillor. This old bloke like me knows about Garrison Keillor and Lake Wobegon days. And he talks about a place called Lake Wobegon where all the women are strong, all the men are good-looking, and all the children are above average. But maths was never a strong point in Lake Wobegon. <laughs> it's Wrexham. There we are. Um, talent. Where does it come from? It comes from Greek word talenton or Latin, uh, talentum, or the plural, talenta. So we do our declensions and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, a talent is actually a unit of money, or a unit of weight. In fact, it's probably a unit of weight first, because that defines how much gold or silver you have. So before you have a talent of silver, it's defined in terms of its weight. Um, in medieval Latin... Uh, the sense was extended. So originally it was just a weight and measure. It would be like kilograms, the parable of the kilograms. Doesn't have quite the same ring. Are you gifted and kilogrammed? Well, I'm certainly kilogrammed. Um, but, but in medieval Latin, the sense was extended to the idea of ability through the influence of the parable of the talents. Now, I don't know if you noticed that, but there's a, a circular reference there now. So the way we use the word talent comes from a medieval understanding of this parable, um, which is a circular reference and not very helpful. Um, so what is a talent? Uh, it's about 30 kilograms, or a, a heavy talent is 60 kilograms. I think I'm the latter, <laughs> several times over. Um, <coughs> a talent of money is enough to employ... 200 labourers for a month. That's a lot of money. That's about, what, 16 years wages for a labourer. In today's money, that might be £250,000, which makes me think of something else. Um, the Apprentice. Maybe that will be helpful to us in a moment. So uh, instead, I'm going to use um, a, a thing and turn it on and everything. And I'm not good with technology. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. So the NIV New Edition 2011 talks about the parable of the bags of gold. And maybe in a few years' time, you'll be talking about your children who are gifted and full of bags of gold. Matthew 25, verse 14 Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to one, uh, another one bag, each according to his ability. 
Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one who had two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you had not sown and gathering where you had not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here it is. It's what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. (coughs) So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned I would have received it back with interest. You're fired. (laughs) Take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. And whoever has, for whoever has, will be given more. And they they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, if you're feeling condemned or convicted, just hold on. Um, I don't know if this is going to be welcome. It's exam time, isn't it? GCSEs, ASs, A2s, university, exams, joy. Um, I used to work long after I'd gone to university, actually long after I'd got my degree, um, a Desmond as we call them, tutu, and <coughs> I would wake up, I would wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, in a panic, that I had failed my A-levels, I could not go to university and I wouldn't get a job. I would wake up with that in the middle of the night. Anyone, any of you had that experience? Sisters, yeah, so you're with me too as well, but you're still in the middle of it, Yeah. Um, there was this sort of almost a fearful expectation of being found out. Um, But before we try and find ourselves in this parable, we need to look at the context. Um, It starts, doesn't it? Again, it will be like. Uh, So what's going on? What's again? Uh, I think some versions have four. Um, Well, if we went back to, say, Matthew 21, uh, 
we would find that Jesus has been up on a journey to Jerusalem. Uh, actually, he's been on a very important journey to Jerusalem. He's ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. And he's had this amazing, amazing welcome. Um, and, and it was such a big event that it's actually seen by Matthew as a fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Uh, this took place, uh, this is uh, 21 verse 4, uh, that, so that what was spoken by the prophet, uh, say, to, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then in verse 9, the crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then from there, Jesus goes almost straight to the temple. And, and he says, uh, well, he goes round and, and, and he finds something that displeases him. Um, now, the Old Testament again prophesied that God himself <laughs> would come to the temple suddenly and bring judgment on the temple. And here is Jesus. Uh, he goes into the temple courts and he drives out all who are buying and selling. He overturns the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he says, it is written, my house will be called a house of <laughs> prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And then follows three chapters of confrontation with religion. Jesus uh, isn't well received by the officials, uh, they don't like what he's doing. What authority do you do this? Let's try lots of questions. Let's see if we can catch him out. Let's see if we can turn popular opinion against him. And then, in chapter 24, um, Jesus leaves. So you've had this journey of Jesus up to, up to Jerusalem. His last long journey up to Jerusalem, judging the temple. Then he just goes outside of the temple uh, he left the temple and was walking away with his disciples and they came up to him uh, and called his attention to the building. So as they're going out, uh, the, the, the disciples come up and say, do you see all these things? He asked, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and they said, tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Jesus has gone. He's pronounced judgment on the temple. And he says, you know this lot, it's all coming down. He actually said, some people are going to see it. Some people, this generation will see this lot come down. Because it should have been a house of prayer for the nations. But it's become a den of robbers. And they don't like that. But that's the context that this parable comes to us in. It's his last parable. And in three days' time, Jesus will be dead. So the context is really important. Before we try and put ourselves into the passage, we need to see the context. Um, <clears throat> so what is the parable about? What time is it speaking of? When will these things happen? When will this judgment come? When will Jesus wrap everything up? Now we often talk about the now and not yet. Uh, we, we say that sometimes we, we read things in the scripture and it has some fulfillment now and it has some fulfillment in the future. 
So we believe Jesus heals our diseases. And we say, one day he will heal everyone perfectly. But now he heals some people. And there's a sort of now and not yet. There's a tension. <coughs> and, and, and in this story, there is a tension. If we're to understand it, there is a now and not yet. Uh, but there's, for us, there's a then, now and not yet. Um, because there was a now and not yet for them too, back then. <laughs> so I don't know if, that's, that's very complicated, isn't it? But I don't know if you can see that, that things like this quite often, and particularly this passage, I think scholars would generally agree that there is multiple fulfillments of this. So when was it going to happen? It was going to happen then. In fact, it was happening right then. With Jesus coming to Jerusalem, it was happening then. Why do I say that? Because he was the long-awaited king who'd been prophesied hundreds, thousands of years before. Originally, God had said to Moses, I will be your king. And then there was a time when Israel rejected God as their king and they wanted other kings. And God promised that one day he would come again as their king. And there's a long history then through scripture of, of how Israel is waiting for their king to come. And things go up, you get Saul, David, Solomon, and then things come crashing down. And it looks, when is this king ever going to come? There must be a son of David to come, a Messiah. When is he coming? And then it seems like it's all quiet. Get to Malachi, there's a promise of his coming, but then there's 400 years to wait for this king to come. And then Jesus comes on a donkey to Jerusalem, and he is there, and what is he doing? He's been away for a long time, and now he's settling accounts. So yet, yeah, that is certainly one fulfillment of this then. There's another fulfillment in AD 70, when Jerusalem and the temple is utterly destroyed, and Jesus' words about not one stone being left upon another become actually true. There, there is a fulfillment here today among us. Some of the things that are said in this parable are happening right now. But there's also something we look forward to, that final day when Jesus comes and everything is fully fulfilled. So really, when does this parable apply? It applies in all of those. It applies with Jesus coming to Jerusalem. It applies... Uh, with the, the destruction of the temple, it, it, it applies today to us and it applies in that glorious day that we look forward to when Jesus comes again. So who is it about? Well, if it's Jesus coming to his temple, it's about Israel. God has come as king. So how did they receive him? What was his assessment? When he settled accounts with them, what did he say? What were the religious people doing? It was actually something that that was prophesied in the Old Testament about how God's people would be cared for or mistreated, actually, by those who were set over them. Um, And that there was a promise that a shepherd king would come and shepherd his own people. And his assessment of the religious people, we read, in the preceding chapters, we have a whole chapter where Jesus pr- pronounces woes on the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, you see, um, if we were trying to apply bits of this parable, we would say 
They had been given everything. They had been given great riches. They had the scriptures. They had the temple. They had God's presence with them. And they had a promise that this is for all nations. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. But what have they had done with it? They've kept it to themselves. It's like Jesus says elsewhere, you don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. You put it on a stand. But no, they'd they'd done exactly that. They'd put it under a bowl. They'd kept it to themselves. It was supposed to shine out to the whole world, but it was kept to themselves. So they are like the wicked servant who takes the treasure that they have been given and buries it in the ground. That's one fulfillment. Perhaps, too, there's a fulfillment for the disciples. Uh, At the end of Matthew, they're going to be given an amazing commission and work to do. And maybe Jesus is saying, make sure you're doing the work I've given you to do. Okay, but there is an application for us. And uh, I hope we're going to work that out. There is an application. If it applies today, it applies to us. So let's see where this goes. I don't know if, if you felt uneasy uh, with this, this parable, just because uh, this doesn't sound like the gospel to me. Uh, we've been singing a lot about the grace of God and how grace treats sinners in a way they don't deserve. Uh, but this seems to be a gospel of work hard and God might just let you get into heaven. Uh, but it's not much of a gospel, is it? Because how, how can I know that I've done enough? Or, or is it almost a prosperity gospel of, you know, God helps those who help themselves? Um, but there are dreadful consequences for getting it wrong. Um, so maybe if you're not prosperous, that's a sign that God doesn't bless you, and, and uh, well... And, and is, it, is it really possible, having been saved, to lose your salvation? So I don't know about you, but I find this... this I asked Nigel if I could preach on this one in particular, because I really didn't get this, and I'm only beginning to get it. It's a very difficult parable to understand. Um, and, and if we're not careful, we'll all go from here feeling terribly condemned... <coughs> And then perhaps some of us will be paralysed with fear and not do anything. And, and the rest of us will start running around like blue, blue <laughs> flies. <coughs> Blue-bottomed flies, like headless chickens, trying to do something quickly, quickly, because he's coming. Quick, quick. Uh, that isn't the intention here. And, and is it connected in any way to what Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 3 about... Um, people who plant churches and build foundations. Uh, it, it talks about if you build on anything other than the foundation of Jesus, um, wood, hay, and stubble will be consumed. But even in that, Paul says, um, the one whose work is all consumed because they built on the wrong foundation, they will yet themselves be saved as those who escape through the flames. So I'm, I'm, I'm still very confused, and you're looking confused as well. 
So let's try and end some confusion. Um, let's just be clear about what the gospel is. What was the good news that Jesus proclaims? Uh, in Matthew 9, verse 10, he's having dinner with Matthew. We've, we've looked at this in the past. And Matthew, who was a tax collector, invited lots of his friends. So while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now that's the gospel. That's the gospel of grace. So how do we understand this in that context? Again, uh, in Matthew 20, verse 25, Jesus called them together. This is the disciples. He says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, over, authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is the gospel. So what on earth is going on in this parable? Well, what can we say about the parable? I think the most important thing to say first of all is that the master is the focus. He's the one who has the wealth. He's the one who has servants. He is the one who sets the agenda. He's got a trip. He's going on it. He tells them what is going to happen. He decides who gets what. He's the one who goes. He's the one who returns when he wants to. He's the one who settles accounts. And he's the one who determines what happens next. He's the one who can say, you're fired. He's the one who is pleased. And their joy depends on his joy. Come and share my joy, he says. <coughs> Just a question. Do you think that being a Christian is about you? Do you think it's really about you? No. It's about him. Being a follower of Jesus is about Jesus. First and foremost, it's about Jesus. It's not about you. Actually, we sing that, don't we? It's not about me. <sighs> Philippians 2, verse 9. God exalted him, not you, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, not you, 
every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The gospel is about the glory of God. It's about God's wealth. It's about God's generosity. It's about God's sovereignty. It's about his plans, his purposes. Isn't it brilliant to be caught up in that? But it's not about you. It's about him. If you think it's about you, you're going to have a lot of angst. Because if it's about you, nothing should ever go wrong. But it's about him and about his glory. The servants are secondary. Uh, Notice this. Servants are either good and faithful or they're wicked and lazy. The master's will is ultimately done, whatever the case. He's got good servants and bad servants, but his will is ultimately done. And ultimately, it is the master who gets the credit. He provided the resources. He made the wise decisions. He managed his wealth well. He, he knows where to place things. And as a dear friend of ours often would say, God doesn't owe us an explanation for why he does things. God doesn't owe us an explanation. He can lead us up the garden path if he wants to. Because it's all about him, not us. Wonderful passage, Ephesians 2. We know it really well. could almost recite it, perhaps. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at those work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God gazed raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it's the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in. So what do good, faithful servants and wicked, lazy servants have in common? They have the same master. They have 
the same opportunities. So how do they differ then? Well, good and faithful servants are eager to get to work. Did you notice that? It says, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
The good and faithful servants live to please the master. They don't live to please themselves. They live for the master. They, they, they would love to hear him say, well done. They'd love to see his smile. They'd love to know that he was pleased with what they've done. They know it's all from him. They know they didn't come up with this stuff. They're just amazed that they got the chance to play with such amazing resources and that he had so much confidence in them to let them do it. Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't you want to work for somebody like that? I think I would. Do you work for somebody like that? The good and faithful servants are wholehearted. The wicked servant is watching the clock. It's interesting, we've already talked about uh, a thing called being positional, um, who we are in Christ. And that's really important that Christians understand who they are in Christ. But that's half of the story. Because being a Christian is relational, it's personal as well. It's not just knowing facts about yourself. It's actually having a relationship with God. It's not just knowing how God considers you. It's responding to how God considers you. It's responding in love and devotion. It's desiring to please God more than anything else. In fact, it's desiring God himself more than anything else. And that's what distinguishes good and faithful servants and wicked lazy servants. So it's positional. Yes, they're all servants in this case, but one of them doesn't love the master. So the question I have for you is, do you love him? Do you love him? Is what you do out of love? Jesus says we can do all sorts of things in his name and not know him. Jesus says we can do amazing things. We can even use spiritual gifts. And he says if we don't have love, we are a clanging cymbal, a sounding gong. Do we love him? Do we love him? Jesus says in John chapter 14, if you love me, Keep my commandments. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and we will make our home with them. Is, is being a Christian to you about family, about being at home in God's house? In, a, in an environment where the love flows both ways. That, that was happening this morning. We were worshipping God, we were hearing what God thinks of us, and we were responding. Jesus says in John 15, verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Wow. Now remain in my love. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you, so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. 
Loving Jesus is the most important thing. Without it, our service is meaningless. It's all about us. If we love him, it's all about him. It's interesting, isn't it? When Jesus restores Peter into service, he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Do you love him? Do you love him? Is it all about what he can do for you? Or is it about what you can do for him? Do you just see God as a celestial Father Christmas? As spiritual gifts, as something that you can just have a bit of fun with? Or is it something that you want to use for his glory? Because that's what they're intended for. Spiritual gifts are intended for his glory. All along we've sort of been saying that Jesus is the master in this parable. He's not. Shock, horror. He's better than this master. Parables always have a limit. You can never push them all the way. They don't tell the whole story. Jesus is bigger than this. Jesus is better than this. Jesus is more glorious than this. But it's in the parable. The hint of that is in the parable. This is what blew my socks off. And it's that last bit. Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, have I lost my marbles? Gnashing of teeth. Do you remember our Irish friends here today? <laughs> There's a wonderful story of, uh, you know, I don't know if it's, it's the Reverend Ian Paisley himself, but somebody saying, there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And a little lady in the front says, but I haven't got any teeth. And he says, Teeth will be provided. (laughs) But that's actually a fundamental misunderstanding of what gnashing of teeth is about. Because it's not the person who is cast out who is gnashing their teeth. I don't know if you ever knew that. I was surprised by that. But I had a look into gnashing of teeth. And gnashing of teeth is what other people do as a threat to you. It's there in the Psalms. Um, It's actually there when... Stephen is stoned. They gnash their teeth. They grind their teeth at him. In the Psalms, it's lions roaring and showing their teeth. That's what gnashing of teeth is. Let's just read a little bit. Psalm 35, verse 11. Ruthless witnesses come forward. They question me on things I know nothing about. They repay me evil for good and leave me like one bereaved. Yet when they were ill, I put on sackcloth and humbled myself with fasting. When my prayers returned to me unanswered, I went about mourning as though for my friend or brother. I bowed my head in grief as though weeping for my mother. But when I stumbled, they gathered in glee. Assailants gathered around me without my knowledge. 
They slandered me without ceasing. Let the ungodly they malicious like the ungodly they maliciously mocked. They gnashed their teeth at me. How long, Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their ravages, my precious life from these lions. This is three days before Jesus is crucified. On that day, they march him outside. We're not going to have him in here. He can go outside to the tip. There is darkness. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there is darkness on the face of the earth for three hours. Outer darkness. Outer darkness. Jesus is the perfect servant. In fact, the scriptures are full of how Jesus is the perfect servant, how he is the one who does rightly, who is the one who does God's will. And we see through the ministry of Jesus how Jesus executes that will perfectly, how he has compassion on people, how he takes what he's been given by God and he uses it again and again for people. And what do they do? They drive him outside and they gnash their teeth at him. This is the kind of servant Jesus is. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you. Do you not love him? Do you not love him? Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness like the flood. When the Prince of Life, our ransom, gave for us his precious blood, who his love will not remember? Who will cease to sing his praise? He shall never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the Mount of Crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. This is how much you are loved. The one who was the perfect servant, took the place of the wicked servant. Did you feel convicted when you read this? You should. We are all, on one level, unprofitable servants. But no, Jesus won't have that. He dies to redeem us, to purchase us, and to make us something else. No longer servants, but friends, no longer slaves, but sons and daughters. And this is the extent to which he will go in his service for you. Now what will you do for him? You can never pay it back. You can never pay it back. But what motivation in view of God's mercies, 
offer yourselves as living sacrifices. It's only reasonable. It's reasonable. Come on, it's in your heart as well. If you're finding this hard, if you're finding it hard to be motivated to serve Jesus, just go to the cross and look how motivated he was for you. Make the cross the centre for you. Follow him. I think we should just uh, stand. I think it'd be good. Maybe the band uh, could come up. Um, we're having a bit of a giggle earlier at uh, uh, a song that is uh, probably was 15 years ago. It was used at Stonely. Um, maybe uh, musically, not quite where we are. Um, but um, I want us to sing this uh, maybe a couple of times on the first verse and the chorus just to, to get it. But I, I want us to, to think about the love that has been shown to us. It's far above all other loves, far beyond all other joys. Heaven's blessings poured on me by the Holy Spirit's power. Now where's your motivation to live for him. <laughs> it's there, isn't it, at the cross. Love's compelling power draws my heart to yours. Tell Jesus how you love him. Respond to him. Use words now and then use words and actions when you go out of here. He is for you the natural thing for a good and faithful servant who loves the, ser- the, the master is, a, is to have success in what they do. The people who know their God will do exploits. Doesn't matter if only he sees it. Doesn't matter if only he sees it. But do it for him because he wants you to succeed. And he gives gifts to you. Church, he gives gifts to us. Not just so that we can have a little praise party or a little Holy Spirit soak time together, but so that we can be empowered to go out and to turn two talents into four or five into ten. If you love him, you can have confidence that on that day he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Wow, what could hold you back from wanting to serve him wholeheartedly if you knew that was going to be the outcome? If you knew that he is for you? If you knew that his resources are perfect? Let's look to Jesus.